This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 154. Invest Local, Private Money Lending Strategies with David C. Barnett. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Over a century ago, Russell Conwell was famous for his traveling lecture in which he encouraged listeners to find the acre of diamonds in their own backyards. He was born in 1843 during the Civil War in Massachusetts, served as a captain in the Union Army, he studied law, became a Baptist minister and a public speaker. Acre of Diamonds was his most famous talk. He gave it over six thousand times, making him one of the original motivational speakers from over a century ago. At the heart of the Acre of Diamonds was a parable Conwell heard while traveling through Iraq in 1870. The summary of the story goes something like this. There was once a wealthy man named Ali who lived not far from the river Indus. He was contented because he was wealthy and wealthy because he was contented. Well, that's quite a quote. And one day, a priest visited Ali and told him about diamonds. Ali heard about diamonds, how much they were worth, and went to his bed that night, a poor man. He had not lost a thing, but he was poor because he was discontented, and discontented because he feared he was poor. Ali sold his farm, left his family, traveled to Palestine, and then to Europe, searching for diamonds. He did not find them. His health and his wealth failed him, dejected he cast himself into the sea. One day, the man who purchased Ali's farm found a curious sparkling stone in the stream that cut through his land. It was a diamond. Digging produced more diamonds, acres of diamonds, in fact. This, according to the parable, was the discovery of the famed diamonds of Golconda. Now, that is a cool story, and a cool parable. The point of it, of course, is that we often dream of fortunes that are to be made elsewhere. We often like chasing the wind. We ought to instead be open to opportunities that are all around us. He gives tons of other stories in that book. We don't have time to get into those stories today, but I do recommend you guys check out the book, Acre of Diamonds. But for today, I'd like to consider investing locally. And our guest today, David C. Barnett, will take us through some of these concepts. Now, David Barnett started businesses, he's closed businesses, he's invested in businesses, he's bought and sold them too. He's been a finance broker, he uh, then owned a business brokerage that now works with entrepreneurs around the world as a consultant to help them buy, sell, finance, and manage their small and medium-sized businesses. He's the author of eight titles on Amazon. So I know you guys will get a ton out of how to be a local investor with David C. Barnett. David, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Mark? I'm glad to be here. Yeah, going great. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. So tell us a bit about the work you do. Yeah, sure. I help people buy and sell businesses and I help entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I do, and I think that's what what you want to talk to me about today, is I do small local investing deals, um, not real estate deals but rather investments for other kinds of things. So let me give you a quick example. 
Uh, I was approached by a couple of fellows who were in a floor refinishing business. They were doing concrete uh, floors in businesses and garages, putting down uh, an epoxy floor covering, this kind of thing. And one of the things they were doing is they were renting from one of these tool rental places, some floor grinding equipment. And every month they were spending several hundred dollars renting this equipment. Mm -hmm. And so they came to me because they wanted to grow their business. And I saw an opportunity to buy the equipment for them and finance it. And I ended up making a superior rate of return on my money while they ended up saving money every month off the rental costs. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the basic things that I say makes for a successful small business investment or local investing deal, like I call them, is that the capital you're putting forward to help that small business owner is actually improving their business. And a loan that you make to someone is very secure when you help them have more money because ultimately the payments are going to come out of that, out of their earnings. And so if you can improve the business, that's what I look for when I do a deal. So you have a book called Invest Local, a guide to bigger investment returns in your own community with private loans and leases. And so mm -hmm. David, tell me, how did you get into this? Sure. It's, it's not average, certainly our podcast title, not your average financial podcast. It's not average to put money into a local business rather than say your average 401k. So tell us, how did you fall into this little niche and it's ex exploding in size? How did you get sure. into this? I've, I've always been an entrepreneur and I studied business in school and I've always had childhood businesses. So business has always been a thing for me. And as I got older and I graduated university and I got into different businesses, I became, I got involved in real estate investing and other kinds of investing. And I started to wonder and look for information about how I could do financial deals and make money at them. And, and the truth be told is I, I never really found the information I was looking for. But after being through a career in sales and then owning my own business, I ended up opening a new business where I was a commercial debt broker. And so when I was a commercial debt broker, small business people would come to me, they'd be looking for money either to acquire machinery or expand their business. And I was brokering loans and leases from B category lenders. So leasing companies, alternative finance companies, this kind of thing. In fact, a lot of my referrals came from bankers. Bankers couldn't help the client, would send them over to me. And so while I was running that business over the course of a couple of years, I started to handle these deals and I started to handle some of the paperwork for the yeah. companies that were doing these deals. And for example, it really dawned on me how interesting this was when a multi-billion dollar equipment leasing company sent me by email a limited power of attorney to act on their behalf. Wow. And so I had arranged a deal where someone was buying an existing business and there was a truck involved. And so the finance company was going to do a lease on the truck, which meant that the title of the truck had to go into the finance company's name. And so this very limited power of attorney gave me the authority to act on behalf of this multi-billion dollar enterprise with one specific piece of authority, which was simply to register the title of this truck down in my local department of motor vehicles. And so I went down there with the paperwork for the lease and the title of the truck and this power of attorney. And I put the title into their name with the client being listed as the operator. And so handling the paperwork from these big organizations allowed me to get a glimpse of how they do things. And more importantly, how they do these things without actually taking on risk. Because 
everything that these guys do in some way is backed by some sort of collateral. And so a lot of the times when we think about investing, people will invest money to buy the shares of businesses and stuff like this. And really, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know if those quote unquote investments are going to turn out to be actually speculations that may not in fact pay out. But if you're lending money to someone and there's a piece of collateral that you could seize if you had to, it changes the dynamic of the investment entirely because all of a sudden you have plan B. Average retirement, average investing, average financial planning has no collateral to back it if things go south. My Mm -hmm. 401k, my brokerage account, my stock account is just paper wealth. It goes up, it goes down, it goes sideways, but there's nothing backing that stock in Microsoft or whatever. What you're saying is different uh, that the way the wealthy stay wealthy and become wealthy is they collateralize their risk. In other words, they back up what they've put out there as a risk with something that they could seize or trade in if things go south in the markets. Absolutely. And over the course of the years when I was a finance broker, what would happen is people would come to me with relatively small deals that these companies just weren't interested in. I remember a restaurant owner who came to me, they needed a new gas range for their kitchen. It was like $3,500. It was not a big deal. Most of these finance companies are going to say, why can't they get a credit card? Why are they coming to me? But some people, especially small business people, they have these roller coaster cash flows. They end up late on payments. Their credit history may not be good, but they know how to run their business. And if it doesn't have a stove, it's not going to run for much longer. And so what I realized was, hey, wait a minute. If the person just needs $3,500 and that stove is there, then maybe I should just try doing this deal with my own money. And that's exactly what I did is I did my own first deal with a relatively low ticket value, but that person was willing to go to a leasing company that was probably going to charge them 16.9%. And I said, I'll take 16.9% backed by a physical asset that I could take a and stove, put in my garage if I had right? to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if they didn't pay me, I could get the stove and I could bring it home, put it in my garage, and then try to sell it online or find somebody else willing to take over the payment. So there was this plan B with a, a real thing that was worth something. And so I did that deal and every payment was made. And what I eventually learned through just extending this idea through my personal network is that, hey, I have money to do some of these deals. If you know someone who's interested in this, tell them about me because what what I've learned is that if you're connected to the people in some way, so if the business owner was referred to you by a common friend, it's, it's very easy if someone gets into trouble to default on the bank because the bank is this big faceless entity. But if you're a friend of their friend, it's much more difficult to default on you. And so there's a certain amount of social moral suasion that can come into play as well. When, if somebody does get into a hard time of deciding who they're going to pay and who they're going to short. Yeah. You're bringing it back to what it's been for as long as we've had civilization, which is trust. Yeah. And so it's an interesting concept. I have a lot of questions popping up mm-hmm. as we go here. I want to start with what you say in the book, retail versus wholesale. And you use the metaphor of shopping. And we recently did an episode on exactly this. So can you explain what you mean when you say retail versus wholesale investments? Sure. So 
The term retail investment is a term that the banking industry uses. And so the whole idea is that a retail investment is an investment product that is ready for a consumer to step up and buy. So these are your CDs or your guaranteed investment certificates. They're your mutual funds, things like this that are ready for you to buy. And what the hallmark of a retail investment is that you put your money in and you don't have to do anything. The, the big machine just rolls and, and you get whatever returns that, that you're going to get. When you put the money into the CD at the bank, what does the bank do with the money? Maybe they take that money and they finance someone's credit card with it, or they give someone an auto loan, right? Mm -hmm. And so the bank is taking your retail money and they're in turn making a wholesale investment. So they ha are giving money to the person who wants to buy the car, but then they have the work to do. So they have to make sure the payments are made. And if the person misses a payment, they have to call them up and say, hey, you missed your payment. And if they get far enough behind, they have to call the repo man or whatever to go get the car. Right. And so that's what I call a wholesale investment. You're getting a higher rate of return, but you have to do some work. And so my question is, why wouldn't I want to do some of that too? Because it means increasing my rate of return substantially. And, and when people read the book and when they first hear about this idea, they think that these are the riskiest types of deals going they're not Mark. It's the opposite. So, yeah. It's the opposite. Right. Because here's the thing, your neighbor could have a perfectly good credit score and they might go talk to the bank and the bank might tell them that they'll get an auto loan for 8% interest. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm depositing money at the bank earning 1%. Right. So if my neighbor will qualify for a loan at the bank, why wouldn't I want to fund it? I'll earn yeah. eight times the rate of return. Yeah. That's right. And so it all comes down to your trust that you've built with, with your network. So I'd love to hear about, I have a lot of, my mind is going lots of places. One, your network, how do you build it? Two, because it's the basis of your investments if you're investing locally. So you must be doing some local networking of some sort or getting to know people somehow. So that's one cool idea. Two, what do you think about the average coined phrase? And we're not average around here, but what do you think about the average coined phrase of diversification? that word. Mm -hmm. And uh, three, how do you Im imagine risk and reward relative to what you say in the book as uh, Exeter's uh, pyramid, which I'm familiar with. And we share mm. some on our show too. So sure. Pick any, pick That's any a lot of, of questions. Let's, yeah. Why don't we tackle them one at a time? What was the first one? Uh, networking and uh, how sure. do you find your opportunities? So it, it, it's through community. Okay. So a, a lot of people will read that book and then they'll, the, they can't, they were coming back to me all the time saying, do I put an ad on Craigslist? And I'm like, no, you do not. Because yeah. you don't want to meet the people that are out there looking desperately for capital. In fact, I created an audio book, which is free for my website for people who've read that book that they can go and listen. But my network stemmed from my 10 year membership in my local Kiwanis club. Who did I meet in the Kiwanis club? Small business owners, insurance agents, bankers, lawyers, accountants. These are the people that are in that service club. And in turn, they're connected to all kinds of small business people. And so this is the kind of tool that you use, the kind of platform you use to build a network of opportunities. Is you connect yourself with people who in turn are connected with many prospective people who might want to do one of these deals with you. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get that social angle, the community aspect to it, because you can determine, you can judge. And here's the other thing too, is the network is self-filtering. So if, if you know an accountant and they know someone who needs money, if the accountant doesn't trust that person, they're not going to pass your name along because the accountant doesn't want to be associated with a deal that goes bad. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So the, what tends to happen is the things that do end up getting filtered back to you tend to be the better quality things. And oftentimes it's interesting when you start to talk to people about this kind of thing, it's not necessarily either the people who can't get credit who want to do this type of arrangement, because one of the features of a private financial arrangement like this is that I don't report to a credit bureau. And this is one of the problems that small business people often have all of their suppliers want to run credit checks on them. And so over at TransUnion or Equifax, it's like ding multiple times a month of people looking at their credit report and those dings cause the score to go down. And in a private deal like this, if I'm collateralized, I do look at financial statements of small businesses. I want to make sure that they seem to know what they're doing. But if it looks good to me, I'm going to do the deal. It's not going to affect their credit score. Cool. So then what about diversification? We did an episode 65 talking about kind of the myth of diversification and how it doesn't protect. But what do you what do you say when folks say, well, wait a minute, David, you're putting money into a stove and a, a small business over here and a small business over there. Aren't you putting too many eggs in the basket? What do you think about diversification? I, I think a lot about diversification because I think about each one of these loans, it's a note is what we refer to it as the piece of paper. Each one of these notes is an asset. And if I look at my overall portfolio, because I'm doing these notes at the types of interest rates that small businesses are used to facing, 8% for really solid people, one-off equipment deals might be 16 to 21%. That's what the institutional lenders are quoting them. So if I do a deal at the same rate, I'm earning 21% interest on that floor grinding equipment, for example, what it allows me to do is if my goal for my overall portfolio is seven or 8% compound yield, it means that 80% of my money can sit in something that is absolutely no risk with a couple percent return, while a small amount of money is out there earning a much higher rate of return. Love it. So if the entire economy shut down zombie apocalypse style and all these small businesses failed, number one, I'd get all the stuff because it's all got collateral. So I'd have a garage full of stuff waiting for, you know, the economy to come back and all of the bulk of the money would just be sitting in the bank account. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) Or uh, yeah, exactly. Or in one of our, as we talk about our dividend paying whole life policies, Nassim Taleb calls this what you just described. He calls it the barbell strategy where you've got a vast majority of your portfolio and something safe, predictable, liquid, earning a conservative, decent, but better than cash return. And then when you find that great opportunity, you are cash rich to strike. Some people call it the rattlesnake strategy. You're still for a long period of time, you're sitting, sitting, looking for deals. And then all of a sudden you can strike with, with earnestness. So that's great. Fantastic. And, and, um, oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing too, is that if rates of return like 21% aren't good enough for you, what I also discuss in the book are leverage strategies. One of the deals I did was for a mobile home. And so... No, this was for a person. It wasn't for a business, but I applied the same thinking to this woman's personal income as I did, as I do to a small business. She had just been divorced and the divorce ended in bankruptcy, which meant that she couldn't qualify for any kind of loan for a home or anything like that. And so she was looking at renting an apartment, Mm -hmm. but she found a mobile home. And when I took a look at the mobile home, the payment to me, plus the lot rent to the owner of the park was going to be less than the rent on the apartment. And so giving her a loan, even at a higher interest rate, was going to benefit her. And so what I then did, though, 
is once the note was secured is I went and I used the note as collateral with one of my buddies because I've got friends who hear about these deals and they go, wow, Dave, that's amazing. I would love to do something like that, but they don't put any time or effort into doing it. So right. I wrote, I write a note at a fair, at a good interest rate. And then I go and I use that note and I borrow from one of my friends at a lower interest rate. And now I've done exactly what the banks do every day. How do you, how do you perceive risk relative to other things? So I want to ask this question when you're evaluating a deal, Exeter's pyramid talks about the risky stuff at the top. And when we go through a market crash or correction, we move down that little pyramid toward things Mm -hmm. that are safe, paper money, gold, treasury bills, that sort of thing. Higher riskier things are going to get vaporized first. You're talking about having access, you're repoing the equipment, but it also sounds like you're working on a more compassionate basis too, where folks couldn't get a bank loan, let's say, where they could get a, a loan from you and from your firm. So Talk to me about how you securitize is a fancy word there, but how do you, as you say, collateralize? What are you literally doing? Are you writing up a legal document for the business owner to say, hey, if uh, you don't make four payments, I'm coming for that stove or what's going on there? So personal property is a little bit different than real estate in in a lot of jurisdictions. And this varies by state or province, wherever you happen to be. If you hold a mortgage on a building and the person doesn't pay you, in some places you have to go to court to get a judgment in order to get your hands on the property. And some places you can just do an auction. It depends on the rules. But for most what we call private property, which includes things like my pen here in my hand or a piece of equipment, the rules are not nearly so tight or so laid out so stringently. And so what it means is that oftentimes whatever you contract for is what you're bound to. Here's an interesting little tidbit about the deals that I do. A bank might require that a business owner personally guarantee a loan for a piece of equipment, meaning that if they don't pay and the bank seizes the equipment, that if there's a deficiency in auctioning it off, which there normally would be because auctioneers don't get full value for things, then they're going to sue the individual to get the balance. I realize that if somebody can't make the payment, they likely don't have any money. Let's face it. If they can't make the payment, the money's all gone somewhere else. There's something really wrong. They can't work in the business because of illness or what have you. So instead of requiring them to personally guarantee the loan, what I do is I get them to personally guarantee the return of the collateral. There you go. Yeah. So I say, I will not pursue you in any legal fashion if you deliver the thing to my garage. And so just the change of terms makes it that much more attractive for a lot of small business people. So in that contract, in that note, there's usually a couple of pieces of paper. So there's the loan agreement, which is the note. And then I'll get them to sign a separate thing, which is a personal guarantee for return of collateral. And I'll put in there that if they're more than 30 days late with one of their payments under the note, that they've personally undertaken to deliver that piece of equipment to me. And, and in the case with the mini home, what I did is I had the note and there, in every state or province, there's something called a personal property security registry. In the states, it's referred to as a UCC filing. So universal or, or uniform commercial code, I think is what it stands for. And so every county or state will have a registry. And so you can create a registration which lets all other creditors and any other interested party know in a public database that you have a security lien against a certain item. And so if it's a piece of equipment, you have a... a serial number and all this kind of stuff written out. And so with the UCC filing or PPSA registration, we call it here in Canada, and the note agreement, those two things together, 
What I then did in the case of the mobile home is I went to my friend and I said, I will offer these two things together, the security and the note as collateral for you to make me a loan. Mm -hmm. So we just did the same thing again. We created a contract between the two of us where he held a note against me with the security being my note. So if I didn't pay him, he could get my note, which made him now the note holder and he would collect the payments directly from the lady who wanted the mobile home. And if she wasn't paying, he could get the mobile home. There you go. So via me, he was able to take advantage of that same security in the mobile home. Cool. Love it. So this is private money lending is uh, yeah. what it's sometimes referred to as. And you get to set the terms. It's private. you know. It, and the business owners oftentimes love it because they're getting maybe favorable rates or maybe favorable terms to traditional mm -hmm. banks. How do you underwrite your... And that's another $2 word there, but how do you choose which loans are worth it to you to make and invest with? Sure. But let's back up just a moment because you mentioned about how it's private and you make the rules. You have to do some research about where you live because in some states, there are different usury laws and yeah. things like this. Correct. Yeah. And and what that usually does is it sets a limit to how much interest rate you can charge for something. And here's the caveat to that is in most cases, those rules are created for consumers. And, you know, this deal like this mobile home deal, that woman would be considered a consumer. I don't generally do deals with consumers. I would never give somebody to finance a large screen TV, for example. Of course. Because yeah. to me, it doesn't create a cash flow advantage in someone's life. That's just financing consumption. That's for Visa and MasterCard to do. But the but a lot of the times these rules simply do not apply to businesses because businesses are considered to be sophisticated consumers. And that's why if you start to look at all the things like merchant cash advance and things like this, some small business people are paying very high rates of interest for their money and they're not even aware that they are. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so you need to look into the rules. Yeah. How do you make your choices? One of the things I heard you say that I'm teasing out of it is, you know, you look for, you're buying a capital good, like a stove. I go back to that idea there. That stove is going to help generate the cash that's going to be used mm -hmm. to then repay you, the the lender. So yep. it's a, you're making smart investments by only buying things that help the restaurant produce the profit that is used then to pay you back. It's great. So I will only make a loan under two circumstances. Number one, whatever it is I'm investing in helps re reduce costs. Or number two, helps grow revenue. For example, there was an auto repair place and they had some room outside and they wanted to install a car wash mechanism, like a self-serve coin operated thing. So nothing would be added to their overhead. Entirely, this would be a revenue generator for them. So that's a no brainer. You're going to increase your revenue by installing this thing. I would be interested in doing that. Or in the case, for example, with the floor grinding equipment, they're going to save their rental costs. So now they have extra cash flow every month because they're saving money. Again, right. that's the kind of deal I'm looking for. We talk a lot on about becoming your own banker, but you're describing a strategy where you become everybody else's banker too. Not everybody, just the people that I'm connected to. Good, and, good answer. And, and, that, and that's the key to it is I don't think that anyone who reads the book is going to end up opening up a finance leasing company and make this their full-time thing. My whole aspiration in writing the book was to fill a void because I went looking for that book. I went looking for this information. And eventually, once I accumulated it myself through 
looking at the contracts I was handling with these other institutions, that's when I realized, hey, I can write this book. And, and the people who are taking advantage of this information are people who have an interest in business, but may not want to leave a good job to go own a business. So if you've got a good job and you have some savings and you want to explore some of these things, literally you can do deals with a couple thousand dollars. In fact, one of the things I recommend in the book is that your first deal should be under the small claims court cap in your jurisdiction. Which is approximately in ballpark. What is that typically? It, it varies. So in some states, it could be 2,500 bucks. In some places, it's 5,000. Some places, it's 10. So that's one thing you want to learn about locally. And the reason why I give that advice is because if things really did fall apart and you had a problem, well, now you can sue someone for 50 bucks or whatever the, the filing fee is for small claim. And you teach yourself through experience and through the steps that I've outlined in the book. But the other group of people who tend to do this quite a lot are small business people who reach the point where they've stopped growing. They pretty much tapped themselves out. Imagine for a moment, a successful pizzeria owner of a local pizzeria. They're, they've grown to do as much as they can handle with the location they have. And the natural kind of thing that everyone says they should do is open the second location. And now if you open that second location, now you have to divide your time between the two. You lose your management efficiency by being in the location. There's all kinds of problems that we've heard about when people expand out to that number two location. So if you're really good at what you're doing and you're making a lot of money and you've, you're accumulating this capital, maybe you should start investing in other people's pizzerias. Because what you can do with your own industry expertise is you can have a better gauge and understanding what's going on in that other business than other people would. And this local investing kind of thing is really a way to leverage specific knowledge. So if you're a welder, you can start financing welding equipment, right? If, if you are some kind of engineer or involved in some kind of technology, use your specialized knowledge to leverage deals in that field because you're going to be able to see and analyze what's going on in business far more quickly than an outsider would be able to. Love it. That's great. And again, it's using your insider knowledge to not buy yourself another job, but to improve and go upstream financially to where you're now helping out and even becoming the bank to your competitors, possibly. That's yeah. Great. A competitor is probably not going to want to do business with you, but you know, in a pizzeria, there's someone who's 10 miles away is not a competitor, right? But they're close enough that you can go over and check out their business. And I, I know of some of my students, for example, who've done these deals. And one of the things I'll put into the note is that they want a quarterly sales report or they, they want some kind of financial knowledge so that they can keep on top of what's going on in that business, which is something the banks do all the time when they do business yep. loans. Yep. So, all right. Great. Okay, David, you've uh, whetted the appetite, I'm sure, of folks listening. So tell us how we can learn more about what you're up to and reach out to you if we'd like to learn more. Sure. My primary business is helping people buy and sell businesses. I've got a website, davidcbarnett.com, where there's literally hundreds of articles and videos all about buying, selling, managing, financing, small and medium-sized businesses. And I would say to anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff, head over there, sign up for my email list, um, and I'll send you stuff that, that pertains to your areas of interest. You select them when you sign up. And it's literally all just sitting there for people to enjoy. It's a huge free resource. And then I offer different courses and programs for people that want to get deeper into it. Very good. And that's uh, David C. Barnett with two T's.com. 
And you mentioned a free copy of the ebook, 21 oh. Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. Yeah, it's one of my most popular downloads and it's available on Amazon and Kindle and everything. 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And what I'm going to do, Mark, is I'll create a special URL for you to put into the show notes that allow people to enjoy that for free. Oh, thank you very much, David. That's awesome. Yeah, I was just uh, talking with someone who he was a photographer and he, you know, was needing to buy equipment. But then he realized after he started his uh, bank on yourself policy that, hey, every, all of his other photographer buddies needed to buy equipment too. So he started offering decent interest rate loans to his, you don't want to say competitors, but your other photographer colleagues, let's say, and they all go to him instead of using traditional credit cards or uh, bank loans. It's, it's just a tremendous deal. You, you invest in what you know and you reduce the risk that way. Yeah. So. And for, for somebody like that, because he's chosen a specific niche of equipment, if somebody ever did get into difficulty and couldn't pay him, and this is why you want to do it with the people you're connected to, because you want to have that communication. So if somebody says to you, look, I'm having trouble, I'm not going to be able to fulfill on this thing then you can talk to them and say, great, drop the stuff off. There won't be any repercussions for you. But because other people are coming to you looking for that stuff, you've got a ready market to get the stuff back out, either to sell it used and, and recoup you know, what you've invested or to get someone paying the note again. You just keep cool. going. You guys see how David's mind works. I think uh, you'd, you'd definitely benefit from reaching out to him. David C. Barnett, two Ts.com. Yep. And that book, Invest Local, you can get it on Amazon. Awesome. Thanks so much, David. Wow, what a cool concept. And again, the idea of bank on yourself was sprinkled throughout here today, as you no doubt heard. But also present is the idea of everybody else banking on you too. Why not, right? If you've got liquid capital storehouse of wealth that you could put to work for your own needs and your own business and your own real estate investing, then you might just find that other people are looking for access to your capital as well and for the right interest rate. You can work it out with them and get yourself set up for local investing, to be a private money lender, to go upstream financially, to do it in a way that's ethical and provides a solution for both you and the borrower. So thank you, David, for having this great concept brought to our audience today. And guys, if you want to be a part of this, I'd love to get your feedback. We are so close to getting 100 five-star reviews on our podcast, and we need your help. If this episode or any of our other episodes have been valuable to you, take a moment, please, and leave a five-star review. You can do that at applepodcast.com and search for Not Your Average Financial Podcast, or you can uh, just pick up any app that uh, you listen to this on and leave that five-star review. Take a picture of it, if you'd like, screenshot, and then send it to hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. If you do that and send us your address, we will send you a copy of one of Pamela Yellen's best-selling books, or if you'd prefer, uh, an audible version of one of the books that we would recommend. So that's our special gift to you and those that take the time to give us a shout out. You might even hear us read your review on our upcoming episodes. Secondly, we want to make sure that we don't just put this out on podcast streaming sites. We also have an email subscription where you can get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox instantly when they're released and let you know exactly when each episode is coming out so you don't miss any of the amazing free content that we're cranking out to our audience every single week. You'll also get access to special events, live events, office hours, and Q&A time with us and 
speak to even some of our esteemed guests. You can sign up for our email list and get all of your episodes delivered to you by going to nyafinancialpodcast.com forward slash subscribe. And that's it for today's episode. Guys, you are rocking and rolling. Have a great rest of your day and weekend. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.